It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, it's a very big day in America today. The first vaccines are being injected all across the country. What a sigh of relief that at least this process now is finally beginning. And the Electoral College is voting today. Today's the day, December 14th. Uh, Spoiler alert, it's probably going to be Biden. Um, just just so you know, uh, Joe Biden is scheduled to address the country tonight. I certainly wouldn't blame him for trying to make a big deal out of the Electoral College certification. I mean, usually it's like a footnote, you know, it's like an inside the paper story. Yeah, the Electoral College met because, you know, by this time, the election's long since been settled. A lot of people would say it has long since been settled with President Trump still battling in the Supreme Court, in the court of public opinion, all of which we will get to on the podcast. Hope you had a chance to see Media Buzz yesterday. We dealt with a lot of this. The segments are online, or you can go to my Twitter feed or the show page on Facebook or all of that. One thing I meant to get to, oh, before I even uh, go on and start chatting here, um, I guess people in Ohio will now have to be rooting for the Cleveland baseball team. We'll get into the name change controversy, too. One thing I meant to get to last week, it didn't get that much uh, press attention. Howard Stern has signed a new five-year contract with Sirius XM. Usually there's this whole long drama because, you know, Howard plays it out on the radio for months. I don't know. Maybe I should retire. It's it's hard getting up so early in the morning and it's so much pressure. and, And, you know, all of this is true. And obviously he doesn't need the money at this point to continue to do the show. Uh, and he did go through some of this agonizing, but he has signed for five years. And there are actually a lot of similarities between Howard and myself beyond the coincidence of the first name. Um, I won't detail them all here, but I guess you could say there's one basic difference, which is that he was getting $90 million for his last contract uh, and probably even more now to continue uh, with Sirius XM. Uh, he did talk about in announcing this, and of course you drag it out because you got a four-hour radio show. You want to talk about it for a long time. And look, by the way, the guy's been at this for a very long time and has undergone a, quite a revolution since the days when he was just, you know, playing records and commenting on that because that's what uh, talk radio was. You still had to have music. And I've said before that I think he's one of the best interviewers in the broadcasting business, and he prepares... Um, extremely well for, you know, whether he's interviewing Katie Couric or Paul McCartney or you name it. In any event, um, one of the things that struck me, he said it's a lot of pressure because he wants the quality of the show to remain high. He also said that because of the pandemic, he's doing the show from home, and that's obviously made it easier. There are certain attractions to that. But he feels like he constantly has to reinvent the show. And I have used that phrase a lot in my career. I mean, I've been hosting cable news shows for more than two decades. And I feel like every year you got to change it, update it, uh, come up with new ways of looking at things, get different guests, get fresh faces. Because if you just do the same thing, you say, well, you know, I'm number one in the ratings, and I'll just keep doing the same thing. Well, eventually you won't be number one in the ratings because, you know, the world is changing, the media universe is changing, technology is changing, politics is changing. Uh, and that's why I've tried to evolve with the times. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge to um, not, you know, like a like a one of these rock bands that is, you know, was famous in the 60s and is still playing arenas. You know, you can just give the fans what they want, which is the greatest hit. So you can try to do a show for 2020. And that's what we're going to try to do. And in fact, next month, we'll be trying to do a show for 2021. And one other note here before I get down to political and sports and other business. Um, and that is, and I, you know, this is of great interest to me as an old newspaper hack, but 
the fact that many American newspapers, you know, in even deeper trouble now than they were before because of the rocky economy and the pandemic, uh, a lot of them are having to give up their newsrooms. And I've, I've, some of these newsrooms and these buildings that the papers used to own were just magnificent. I mean, you know, it's just with sculptures and statues and soaring towers and all of that. Um, but more and more, in order to save money, and I think this is also a, a fallout from the pandemic. I mean, now newspapers know that they can put out a, a paper without having everybody gather in the same space. Uh, you can see where it'd be very tempting to save the money and just lease space or not even have a space at all. So in just in recent months, you got New York's Daily News, uh, the Miami Herald. I've been in that building. Um, it is just a magnificent view over the bay. It's just wonderful. And the Baltimore Sun have joined a bunch of other papers in abandoning their headquarters, uh, saying, well, you know, they were empty anyway because of the pandemic. Uh, Tribune Publishing, which owns... Uh, the Baltimore Sun, and some other papers, uh, said, hey, we're reevaluating our strategy. Do we really need all this real estate, or should we put the money into other things? Here's a quote from uh, Emily Brinley. She is a a reporter at the Hartford Current in Connecticut, also owned by the Tribune Company. A newsroom is a lot more collaborative than a lot of other workspaces are. And that's the thing is, I mean, I was a much better newspaper reporter and columnist and analyst because I was just around all these smart people all the time. Even, you know, casual hallway conversations. Hey, did you hear about this? Because you got all these people and they all have different specialties, whether it's defense or sports or culture or movies or diplomacy or the Supreme Court. And they say things like, yeah, did you see this story on that? And I, you know, I got a lot of ideas uh, and hopefully gave a few ideas as well just by being in that sort of cross-pollination environment. But, you know, like a lot of other things, and I miss it now. I miss being at the Fox headquarters and talking to people and seeing what other takes other people have and just also just the companionship. I mean, it's a great commute working from home, but I'll be happy when more of us get this vaccine and we can return to some semblance of reality. Speaking of reality, story number one. Well, this happened Friday night after the last podcast, which is the Supreme Court, as expected, Uh, unanimously turned down that Texas lawsuit that President Trump had put so much stock in that the administration had officially gotten behind that 17 other state attorneys general who happened to be Republicans uh, filed uh, amicus briefs for that Texas suit. And I'll get more on this later, 106 Republican members of the House, which is a majority of the House Republican Caucus, also uh, signing on to some friend of the court brief. And, you know, almost all of the media, from National Review on the right to The Atlantic on the left, were saying this suit is going nowhere. The high court's going to throw it out. I mean, here you have the state of Texas, you know, backed by these other states, saying, you know what, we think that you justices should should toss out the election results in these six battleground states uh, because we, we think there's a lot of fraud there. And we just don't think it was right. And our rights were affected. Well, so, you know, it was tossed out as anybody with a law degree could have predicted because they had Texas had no standing. I mean, it was a Hail Mary. That was evident. And the problem is when you said these things, not just me, but anybody in the media business, you know, this is not going to go anywhere. The people who passionately support President Trump say, oh, you're anti-Trump. You've never liked Trump. You're a never-Trumper. And it's just not true. The journalists who said, and the commentators and the legal analysts who said that this uh, Texas suit was at best a real long shot, I mean, they were just trafficking in reality. They were right. 
And I say it was unanimous because, yes, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito uh, had dissenting opinions saying, well, for technical reasons, the which has to do with the state's rights to sue other states, usually it's like border disputes or water rights or something, uh, they should at least be able to file the suit with the Supreme Court. But then we, we think there should be no relief. So nine members of the Supreme Court, which, remember, has a 6-3 conservative majority. Remember, one-third of the justices are appointed by President Trump himself, most recently Amy Coney Barrett. They all agreed that the high court should should offer no relief in this case, that Texas didn't have standing. And the president went on a tear, both in his interview with Fox's Brian Kilmeade and on a whole series of tweets on Saturday, saying this was a disgraceful decision by the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court lacked courage, and that um, it was simply a case where he could not get his day in court. And that's where I have to disagree. He got his day in court, and the nine justices says, uh-uh, that's not happening. We're not taking this case. You know, even though they didn't get to the merits, they didn't need to get to the merits. When justices rule, and this is true at lower courts as well, that you don't have standing to file a lawsuit, that's a decision. You had your day in court. It was a second straight um, turndown by the Supreme Court, uh, uh, the other one being a Trump campaign appeal from Pennsylvania. So he's, he's sort of like like one for 50 in these legal cases, one procedural ruling in Pennsylvania that he was able to prevail on. And so here is, for example, the Wall Street Journal's conservative editorial page. President Trump's legal challenges have run their course, and he and the rest of the Republican Party can help the country and themselves by acknowledging the result and moving on. Trump's last legal gasp came Friday evening when the Supreme Court uh, refused to hear the case in which Texas said, you got to overturn the results in Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. As we predicted, the journal says, the court cited Texas's lack of legal standing to challenge how another state manages its elections. Uh, it also says the spectacle of so many House Republicans endorsing the Texas suit is depressing, and they aren't profiles in courage. Here's Carl Rove, who consulted, in, you know, former Bush White House official, Fox News uh, contributor, who consulted informally with Trump during the last election. He said on the air yesterday, I think in the long run, he's not helping himself or the country. America likes comebacks, but they don't like sore losers. And he is on the edge of looking like a sore loser and probably will look like it after January 6th. That's Karl Rove saying this. You don't have to believe the liberal media. Okay, why January 6th? Well, here's the deal. Now that the Electoral College by tonight will have certified Joe Biden as the winner, there's one more procedural step that usually doesn't even get any coverage at all because it's such a... Uh, automatic procedural thing. On January 6th, the members of the House and Senate must vote to accept the electors' votes. You know, the Electoral College meets today. The House and Senate say, okay, it's now official, and whoever wins is the next president of the United States. So there is a movement now among some Republicans to challenge that, to, to do what the Supreme Court wouldn't do, to do what all these state courts wouldn't do, to do what all these federal appeals courts wouldn't do, and that is, you know, try to not accept the results in key states like Pennsylvania and Georgia, uh, Nevada, Colorado, Michigan, and then you overturn the election, right? I mean, leaving aside. So this is not going to happen, in part because under the arcane rules that govern this, you know, and the whole Electoral College thing is arcane, we all know that, both the House and the Senate. First of all, you have to have one House member and one Senate member from the same state 
to uh, agree to challenge. Well, right now you've got a bunch of House members who want to do it. So far, no Republican in the Senate has stepped forward and says, yes, I will initiate this challenge. Secondly, it then goes back, there's like two hours of debate, and it goes back and both houses debate it, and both houses have to agree. Well, Nancy Pelosi will be running the House, even with a slimmed-down Democratic majority, and that's not going to happen. So it's just futile. Uh, this would put Mike Pence in the position of having to officially confirm, accept these results, that he and President Trump lost. By the way, that's happened a number of times in history. Al Gore had to, when he was vice president, had to certify that he lost to George W. Bush. Joe Biden had to certify that Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump. This is just four years ago. Um, so it's interesting. And by the way, the Democrats have played this game sort of as a protest. So 2017, several Democrats objected to Trump's win in key states. They were claiming, well, Russia interfered. Um, but it was symbolic because Hillary Clinton had already conceded. And no Democratic senator joined the effort, so the objections were done with. So, you know, I understand the symbolic value of saying, I do not accept this. But in terms of this actually making a difference, not going to happen. And just one more thought on this. So looking at a column in the New York Times by uh, conservative Ross Douthat, who's not a big Trump fan, because there's a Fox News poll uh, that broke over the weekend, 77% of Trump voters believe what he says. The election was rigged, even though he's been turned down in court after court after court. So how is that? 68% of Republicans overall believe the election was stolen from Donald J. Trump. Well, Douthat says, well, you know, there's two parts to the GOP. One part behaved entirely normally, he said, certifying elections. These are people like the Georgia election officials, the Arizona election officials who were Republicans, rejecting frivolous claims and conspiratorial lawsuits, declining to indulge the conceit that state legislatures might substitute their votes for the electoral outcome. The other GOP, says Douthat, is acting like a bunch of saboteurs, insisting the election was stolen, implying that the normal party's officials are potentially complicit and championing all manner of outlandish claims and strategies, culminating the lawsuit filed by the Attorney General of Texas that sought to have SCOTUS uh, nullify the election results. What separates these two parties, says Douthat, is not necessarily ideology or partisanship or even loyalty to Trump. It's about power and responsibility. So he says, this is interesting, Republicans behaving normally are the ones who have actual political and legal roles. In other words, if you're the governor of Georgia, you're the top state election official in Georgia, you actually have to follow the law. And you can't just say, you know what, I'm a loyal Republican. I like Donald Trump. We're throwing out all the people who voted for Biden, and we're going to award the state of Georgia to President Trump. The Republicans behaving radically, he says, they're doing so in the knowledge or the assumption that their behavior is, is a performance act. Uh, it's the act of storytelling rather than lawmaking. In other words, it's kind of a free shot. You know, if you're one of these 106 House members, you don't want President Trump angry at you, crusading against you, engineering a primary challenge against you, which he may well have the power to do even when he's out of office. He's still going to sort of be the leader of the Republican Party. So you say, you know what, I'll go along with this. I know the Supreme Court's going to turn this down. I know that the state legislatures are not going to overturn the results. But this way, you know, who will remember this, you know, six months from now, two years from now? So I'll just go along. So Douthat, uh, stealing a word from Joan Didion, calls us a kind of dream politic. In other words, you take a stand, it's symbolic, but nothing really happens. All right, story number two. The coronavirus, I mentioned the, the nice sight of the vaccines. Been watching the coverage today. So the first woman in the United States to get uh, the vaccine, and it was televised, uh, was an African-American nurse 
in Queens. And it was a sort of a television or video hookup to Andrew Cuomo, uh, who was commenting on it, and he was praising, as well he should, you know, the frontline workers, the healthcare workers, the doctors, the nurses, anybody who works in a hospital, putting their lives at risk day after day after day. And since uh, it's been universally decided that those um, healthcare workers should be the first to get this potentially life-saving vaccine, I think it was entirely appropriate. But, you know, Nobody on TV was mentioning Trump. And I've been very critical going back to, you know, February and March when Trump was saying, you know, it's going to disappear, it'll be gone by April, it'll melt by the summer. You know, there's a lot to criticize there. But on the other hand, he deserves some credit for Operation Warp Speed, the fact that the Pfizer vaccine uh, got, was developed very quickly and got FDA approval, Moderna is next. He, he would have been blamed if the whole thing was a fiasco. So I'm not hearing Trump getting any credit at all because that doesn't fit the media narrative. Meanwhile, uh, last night, President Trump announced, uh, I believe on Twitter, that he's going to delay a plan for senior White House staff members to get the vaccine. That had been the plan. Oh, this happened hours after the New York Times reported that the administration was going to rapidly distribute the vaccine to its staff. Uh, and the optics, I guess, were that, well, you're, you guys are taking it. The president himself doesn't need it. He says he'll take it eventually because obviously he's already had COVID-19. Um, while the frontline healthcare workers, you know, you're taking a, a shot, a vaccine that could have gone to somebody in a hospital somewhere in the country. Um, and so I guess the president recognized the optics and he said people working in the White House should receive the vaccine somewhat later in the program, unless specifically necessary. This is the tweet. Um, I have asked that this adjustment be made. I am not scheduled to take the vaccine, but look forward to doing so at the appropriate time. Thank you. I actually think it would have been okay to give it to top White House officials, and I think it, it is okay in every state for the governor to get it, the lieutenant governor, the state legislative leaders, maybe even all the lawmakers. Politically, maybe they look like they're jumping the line. But, you know, you got to have a functioning government. I think Joe Biden should get it. He says he's going to wait. Uh, he could get it. I think Kamala Harris should get it. Um, you got to protect the leaders of the country. I and mean, look, it's a relatively small number of people we're talking about, so it's the politics of symbolism. But Trump deciding the symbolism was not good, and so he changed the plan. Meanwhile, you know, it started yesterday. You had, you know, trucks and cargo planes going out with the first 3 million doses of this Pfizer vaccine to hospitals in all 50 states. And so this sort of rolling coverage on cable today is like, first uh, shots given in Massachusetts, first shots given in Georgia, first shots given in New York. And look, it's a big story. Um, it's a huge story. The problem is we don't have enough vaccines right now. And it would have been better if the Trump administration had bought another 100 million from Pfizer because that ended up being committed to Europe. So we do have 100 million, but Pfizer has to make them. There's the distribution issues. So it looks like, uh, I guess, HHS Secretary Azar said that by the end of the year, most people in nursing homes, maybe old people in nursing homes will get their shots. I certainly hope so, since you're talking there about the most vulnerable population. And then, you know, all of the hospital workers, the medical clinics, all those people have to get it. That takes you to about 22 million doses, um, keeping in mind that everybody needs two doses. It takes you about 22 million people, I should say. The doses would be the, the, double that. Then you get into early next year, and then who gets it next? Is it people over 65? Is it other people? Is it people who work in grocery stores or other retail stores? Is it police and fire officers, fire, police officers and firemen, uh, firefighters who can't obviously phone it in and work from their computer in a home office? So uh, that's going to be a continuing big story, and ultimately the Biden administration will be tackling that um, 
challenge because it is going to be a big challenge. And also it's going to be a challenge to convince people that this is safe and you got to take it. Because it, this only works if most Americans take the vaccine. I saw some polling numbers today that said maybe more people are starting to have confidence in it. Um, but for a long time, it was like, well, you know, as many as, what, 40, 50 percent saying, well, I think what, what a lot of people are actually saying is they want to wait. They don't want to be in the first, even if they're, they're qualified. They want to see about the side effects, see if there's any bad reactions beyond a couple of days of headaches or fevers. Um, and then they'll take it. And I think the more people take it and it's shown to be safe and effective, the more other Americans will have confidence that they can take it. And then once you get up to like, well, I don't know, 75, 80, 85% of the country taking it, well, for one thing, they're protected. But then you do reach a point where, you know, the virus, I think, would start to diminish. I'm not an expert on this, but listening to the experts, uh, that will be a welcome day. Now, whether that will start to happen in April or in June or over the summer, you know, who can tell at this point? Uh, it's a gargantuan undertaking, but at least we're on day one now of finally having an FDA-approved vaccine for this country, and we're seeing this play out in the UK and in other countries as well. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right. Story number three. Uh, it's a little bit about the Joe Biden filling out his cabinet. Politico has a piece. I kind of think it's overblown, but I'll let you decide. Joe Biden's decision to nominate a recently retired military general as defense secretary blindsided the lawmakers who will have to pass a waiver to allow for his confirmation. That's retired general, four-star general Lloyd Austin. Biden's choice of a former White House chief of staff as secretary of veteran affairs, um, that's McDonough, uh, rankled war veterans who thought one of their own would lead the agency. I saw the head of one of these veterans groups on TV saying, you know, uh, McDonough's a nice guy, but really, we weren't even consulted and it should have been one of, it should have been a veteran. That's why it's the VA. Hasn't always been that way. Near attend in the pick for OMB. Uh, she pissed off both sides, Bernie Sanders supporters and conservatives. And then you get into some of the minutia. Biden stumbled, says Politico, because he didn't select the Latina governor of New Mexico, but let it be known that she had turned down another job, so they weren't happy. Um, and there was a last-minute choice of... Um, Former Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, who held the same job in the Obama administration, he's going to get it, but because they couldn't decide on this one or that one. I don't know. He's named 14 people so far. Nine of them, this is for cabinet-level posts, nine of them are people of color. Seven of them are women. So on the diversity front, I think Biden is doing pretty well. Look, the piece says some of these picks were rushed, some were delayed, some came as a surprise, or those expected to be consulted. That happens every four years. Uh, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect raw. You're trying to stand for government. But the main thing here, my takeaway is different for Politico. Uh, oh, way much more chaotic than it needed to be, said one person familiar with the transition de deliberations. You know, well, how about going on the record? My take is this. It tells you more about the Democratic Party and the sense of entitlement from all of these interest groups and ethnic groups that no matter who Biden ended up picking, they would be unhappy people. Look, there's only so many uh, prime jobs. Some people can be happy. Some people are going to be unhappy. But clearly, he's named a number of African-Americans, a number of Hispanics, um, also some white men, also some white women. Um, most of the, you can't criticize most of them on the grounds of experience, and you can criticize them for being sort of not fresh faces or they're retreads from the Obama administration. Like, all that is fine. That's an interesting debate. But they're not, they're, they're a bunch of people who he's worked with and are kind of his friends, but they're not unqualified cronies, no question there. My point is that these 
these groups feel so entitled that if he doesn't even pick, uh, let's just say, an African-American or uh, a Hispanic for a particular job, for example, he hasn't picked an attorney general yet, they're crying foul. He crying out loud. He picked a black vice president. The first in American history, the first black president in American history, the first woman of Asian descent, and the first woman to be vice president in the United States. I just think all these groups, they're going to end up totally screwing up the Biden administration if they don't cut him some slack and let him govern without, you know, nitpicking him to death. All right. Story number four. Everyone going crazy over this Wall Street Journal op-ed, and it was a tremendously stupid piece of writing. This had to do with Jill Biden. Jill Biden would be the second lady, and why she calls herself Dr. Jill Biden. So a guy named Joseph Epstein, who's 83 years old, who himself has taught at universities, but he doesn't have a doctor title. He writes this piece saying, you're the new first lady, kiddo, and stop calling yourself doc. Because it's kind of fraudulent, you know? The word, the term doctor should be referred, reserved for people who can deliver babies. So Jill Biden has a doctorate in education from the University of Delaware. So she calls herself doctor. Uh, meanwhile, the Biden team, Biden spokesman, said this piece was a disgusting and sexist attack. The paper should be embarrassed to print it. Um, Kamala Harris's husband, Doug Emhoff, the story would never have been written about a man. And by the way, you know, even if there's some legitimate debate about who should be called Dr. Snow, why unload this on Jill Biden specifically? Nobody complained about Dr. Kissinger, who wasn't a medical doctor. Nobody complained about Dr. Brzezinski, who wasn't a medical doctor. Nobody complained about Dr. Martin Luther King, for whom we now have a national holiday. In fact, his daughter Bernice tweeting, my father was a non-medical doctor, and his work benefited humanity greatly. Yours does too, I guess, talking to Jill Biden. Um, I mean, everybody just up in arms about this tremendously stupid piece. Because why pick on Jill Biden? It does seem sexist. And also, like, you know, if you've got a doctor and you want to call yourself a doctor, who cares? It's like such an unimportant issue. I thought it would be, it would be like the New York Times thing where, well, you know, we regret in retrospect we published this piece and maybe somebody gets demoted, but no. Um, oh, by the way, this guy, uh, Epstein, taught at Northwestern University. He hasn't taught there in 20 years. They put out a statement saying, well, you know, he was never a tenured professor. We, uh, they, they, they wiped his bio off the website. Okay, so it's a little bit of cancel culture. Nevertheless, Paul Jagot, the editorial page editor of the Wall Street Journal, he's not backing down. He says, why go to such lengths to highlight a single op-ed on a relatively minor issue? My guess is that the Biden team concluded it was a chance to use the big gun of identity politics to send a message to critics as it prepares to take power. There's nothing like playing the race or gender card to stifle criticism. He goes on to say, Mrs. Biden is now America's most prominent doctorate holder and is taking a leading role in education policy. She can't be off limits for commentary. That part is true. But why get into this? I, I just why? And I don't, you know, the idea that, this, that I don't just don't think the Biden team is that uh, organized that it could get all these people to suddenly rush onto Twitter. You know, are some of them liberals who want to defend uh, Joe Biden? Sure, but some of them are conservatives like Meghan McCain. So she's sick of this denigration of women. So I just think the thing was a complete fiasco. The Wall Street Journal has the right to support it. Oh, by the way, Wall Street Journal reporter Melissa Korn tweeted that pieces like this make it harder for me to do my job. I can't even bring myself to include a link because why give it more air? 
It's disgusting, she said, and she works on the news side of the Wall Street Journal. And finally, story number five. Cleveland's Major League Baseball team has decided it will no longer be called the Indians. So we already went through this with the Washington Redskins, who couldn't even come up with a name, so now they're the Washington football team. Eventually, I guess they'll come up with some name that won't piss off too many people. And now, um, Cleveland will no longer be the Indians. I think it's been that name for like more than 100 years. It's not clear whether Cleveland, uh, what it will do in the upcoming season. Looking at a story here from CBS Sports, um, they could just say we're the Cleveland baseball team. They come up with a new nickname. I, I never found the, the Indians name that offensive, but what was offensive was the logo, the Chief Wahoo logo, and the Indians started to distance themselves from that a couple of years ago. Uh, now, so some of the names being thrown out, uh, Spiders, I don't get it. Rockers, because the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that makes sense. The Crows, the Cleveland Crows, okay. Um, also, if Cleveland does this, what about the Atlanta Braves? The Atlanta Braves seem to have no indication that they're going to change their name. Um, and they have taken a lot of heat for the tomahawk chop, which the fans do. Um, look, is some of this politically correct? Yes. But Redskins was an offensive name. The logo was offensive. The Indians logo is offensive. And maybe it's time. Maybe it's just time night to fight these battles. I mean, it's almost like the Dr. Biden thing in that it all comes down to semantics. But there's no question that many or most Native Americans find these sports teams' names to be offensive. And in this era, maybe it is time. You know, there used to be the basketball team here used to be called the Washington Bullets. And in an era, this is a couple of decades ago, when there was so much gun violence in Washington and in Baltimore where the team used to play, uh, they decided, you know, we're, just, we're not going to be called the Bullets. We're going to be called the Wizards. And then no, nobody thinks about it anymore. So when I was, as soon as Cleveland has a new nickname, there'll be hand-rigging, there'll be op-eds, people will be upset. And in a year from now, uh, as long as Cleveland maintains a baseball team, uh, I think we'll all just move on. Well, Biden speaks tonight. We'll talk about that tomorrow on the podcast. We'll talk about the Electoral College results when they are official. But as I said, there's not very much drama about how it's going to play out. What is unknown is how, how the president's going to react. I mean, one time he said, look, the Electoral College certifies Biden. I'll accept it. But I don't think that's the mode he's in right now. Just take in a wild guess. Everybody out there, stay safe. Uh, we can all look forward to the days when we can get the vaccine. I hope you'll subscribe. I mentioned this, I think, on Friday. You can now get this podcast on Amazon Music. So along with your playlist that you're constructing of your favorite kind of music, it's easy to click on this. Also, Apple iTunes and all the other places where you get friendly neighborhood podcasts. We'll see you all tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.